calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Welcome back, everybody. So good to see Well, you were here last time. That's right. That's right. So glad you're able to, to join us for however long you can. I yeah, know I've, got a, I've got a deadline that on a major project, it's already been discussed. So I think I, I can say that I'm working on a Star Wars novel. Uh-huh. First thing I have to do, it's going to be with featuring Mace Windu. And I have to turn in the outline for that this week. So I've got to jump on that. And we've oh. got a bunch of other stuff too. So why don't you start by talking about what you're doing from your perspective and I'll talk about what's going on with me from my perspective and then we'll just kind of roll it. And first, everybody, hang on, because we have such a great guest today. So funny. I can't wait to talk to her. Naomi Ekperigan, who is a comic and a writer, and we've been on a podcast together. And she'll tell me if I pronounce her name wrong, but I heard that hard G the last time I I heard it. So I hope it's right. And if not, we'll edit it out. So it's all good. But yeah, I think, Steve, this is a good time to talk about a little bit about, you know, what's going on. About to catch the Holy Ghost right here in the podcast. So, yes, we had a beautiful drive yesterday. Steve likes to take drives. First of all, we live in Upland, and it's we have a beautiful view of mountains and palm trees, which is my favorite combo. 
So Steve knows it is very hard to pry me out of the house. Yeah, you can, yeah. Get, you can get snow-capped mountains and palm trees in the same visual image. Like, you know, the, just, we, yes, that view from our closet. <laughs> like the first thing you <laughs> or, wake up. Let alone morning, our front like, door. Or, or oh, about. it's so pretty. I love it here. But Steve likes to to be on the road, and we have an outline we're working on. So we wanted to... You know, it's like our version of going to Starbucks, except except without being around other people. And we we went to Lake Arrowhead for the first time. And that was not only scenic and really fun, but we did so much great work. Like we really so. You know, we'll know later on today, you know, when we have our meeting to kind of block things out, because then we have a meeting with producers on Friday. We're, we're working very, very hard to get things going because everything shuts down if the writer's strike happens. So if slash when, yeah, if get slash when. You know, as much work as, as possible done this week. But it felt it felt like we were able to work together without with far less stress than, right? than has existed on this particular project or a number of other projects in the past. We're learning, we're, we're figuring this out. Well, careful listeners might be able to piece it together, but the project we're working on now, we're, we're writing a pilot outline. The project we're working on now was the very first project we ever collaborated on. I don't know if you remember talking about that, Steve, but we weren't even married and we were already hard at work trying to collaborate on yet another version of this. I mean, we've project. It's been in and out of development for many, many years. And I don't know, I feel like this is the one, but the thing that's most exciting, like you said, is... It just feels smooth. We have, I I don't know what, what do you think it is? Well, I think that there are a number of different things. One of them is that we've been through this process a number of times. And so we, we know this project inside out, upside down. True. And another is that we've worked together. And so we understand each other much better. And we have, we're at a different place in our lives. I think that part of that is that sense of, you know, next level. Mm. In every area of our lives, it's possible for us to look at it and say that the work that we have done up until this point has paid off to the point we're actually at a different level of our lives. We actually crossed the stream to the other shore. We actually, you know, climbed the ladder up to the roof. And then once you're there on the other shore or on the roof, you can throw away the tools that got you there. At the very least, you can reevaluate them. So we're looking at these things and asking ourselves, what's most important about us? What's most important about our health? What's most important about our family? What's most important with our finances? That pretending that we have not grown in this sense would be an insult to the younger versions of ourselves who work so long and so hard. And I also think that, that not recognizing when you have achieved your goals is another way of spitting on that younger so, mm, and all that work and all that work. That's right. Yeah. You can't celebrate and say, God, we did it. You know, it's, it's wonderful. We're here. How are you supposed to have the energy and the, the belief, the confidence to think that you could grow another level? You know, unless, unless you can acknowledge that you got here, where do you get the strength to think that you can go there? So well I, put. I think that there are simply times in life when it's best you know, you, you look at, I lost that weight, you know, and now what, you know, I, I cleared my bills and now what I, I found the love of my life. And now what that movement away from pain is one thing that gets you to the zero point. But once you're at the zero point, you need to find a way to take pleasure in what you're doing. 
that you are being pulled by what you love rather than running away from what you fear. If you don't do that, you can get into a loop like lose weight. Now you you quit the diet and exercise and now the weight creeps back on. So And then the next time you try to lose that weight, it's harder because you've also lost some muscle mass because you were fasting so much. And it gets harder and you go into a descending spiral as opposed to freeing yourself from the tar pit. And now let me let me race toward the picnic. You know, let, you know, it's it's you have to set yourself up for that. And so I think that we've simply declared we're at the next level. All and, I heard you so all I heard was picnic out of all that. <laughs> no, but but no, you're right. And, and speaking, speaking for me personally, I think we have just learned how to work together better. There is no question about it. I think yeah. from my part, I trust you more oh, after so all glad. these years. I understand, I, I understand. where you're in. Yeah, you're a little pushy. Are yeah, you? I am. I mean, you had a much more assertive collaboration style coming out of, I think, your collaborations with Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven. Especially Jerry. Where you had to really sort of fight. And I was new to collaboration. So anything that looked like assertiveness made me feel a little nervous about being overwhelmed or losing track of my vision. And now we are just, oh, we're like that. So excited. I'm so and, glad. Yeah, and I think it's going you well. know, it, just to be honest, that's what you deserve. This yeah. project we're working on is something that's very close to your heart. Yes, it is. That. And I feel that if if my position is I'm here to protect you, to support you, to give you energy so that you can transmute that energy into creativity, then I am honored to do that. I, I can accept that role. And well, and we've maybe, learned maybe so it's much. my own ego. I've got less ego. I think we both do. I think we both have yeah. less ego. We trust each other more. And after our writer's room experience, now we're ready to just throw those cards up on the board and feel like hey we're doing something. Yeah. There you go. I think this is a good time to bring out our guest, don't you? Well, no, but one, one more thing. I've okay. been, been nominated for, let's see, what 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 are the awards and the glyph? Yes. Sort of like the NAACP Image Award for comic books. Congratulations. Uh, and also the, you were nominated for your Graphic novel with Charles Johnson. Yes, the I was. Pack. We got two nominations, Best Story and Best Writers. And we got nominated for, for The Keeper. I think it was Yay. the Yay! For both of us. Yes. Yay! Which is it's always good to be recognized. So what, well, let's, let's, let's uh, you know, read, the, read our guest and then bring our guest in. We got to bring the guest hello, in. Hello, and uh, then I will bow out and let you two ladies have a wonderful time together. Well... Hopefully, I am saying it right. As a Tanana Reeve, I definitely need to know how to say Ekparagan. Ekparagan. See, I did it. Naomi Ekparagan. It rolls off the tongue. Naomi Ekparagan was born in Harlem, New York. She's an actor, stand-up comedian, and writer who's appeared on Me Time, Yes Day, and Mythic Quest. She was featured in 2022's season three, I believe, of the stand-ups on Netflix. She's also appeared on True TV, VH1, MTV, F. X, HBO, the whole alphabet. Her Comedy Central half hour special premiered in October 2016. Watch it now at ComedyCentral.com. She's written for Broad City, Hulu's Difficult People, and NBC's Great News in 2017. She was listed as one of the 10 comedians you need to know by Rolling Stone. She also co-hosts her own hit podcast. Actually, I, I... not that ours is a hit podcast, but hers is a hit podcast called Couples Therapy with real life hubby because I saw all the wedding photos on Instagram, Andy Beckerman. So please welcome to the podcast, Naomi Ekparagan. Hey. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Naomi. 
Now the question of the hour, am I saying Ekparigan right? Yes, you are. You had yes. it from the beginning. Oh, I yeah. had it. That's a great way to start. Ladies, I always had have it. a wonderful, wonderful time. And hopefully, Naomi, you and I will have a chance to talk another time. You know we're going to talk you, about you as soon as you leave. So. <laughs> take care, ladies. <laughs> Go Bye-bye. on and take, take your chances, Naomi. I'm so, it's so, we had so much fun. I first, well, I first met you through your stand-up because I did see the stand-ups. I'm a comedy head. So I, I saw you on the stand-ups before. I was approached about being on the Interview with a Vampire podcast, mm-hmm. but that's how we met. So tell the audience a little bit about that podcast, why it was so much fun, and why you want to do it again. The Interview with the pa- Vampire podcast is a companion podcast to the AMC show Interview with the Vampire, the new one that premiered last year, 2022. And Woo. it was so fun, such a good show. And so when I was first approached, it was funny because... It was like, would you have any interest in doing this? And I was like, I'm sorry. Yes, I love all things vampire. Like, they didn't know when they asked me. Like, it was <laughs> just more like, asking. would you maybe be interested? And I was like, oh, you have no idea. So it was so good to be chosen. And what was so fun about that podcast is we got to talk to people like you, Jewel Gomez, mm-hmm. uh, actors and writers from the show. Of course, we got Louis and Lestat themselves. We talked to the whole cast, Eric Bogosian included. And so... It was just such a good, it really felt like it was a podcast that was bringing you more than the show. You know what I mean? Like it was going yes. deeper, telling you more, analyzing the text. Honey. Yes. Okay. We're getting the professor, Professor Dew coming through, telling <laughs> us what we needed to know. I'm like, who's Professor Dew? Because I felt like I was just a fangirl on the podcast. Right? <laughs> no, it's so funny because when, when AMC approached me, first it was, there were two things happening simultaneously, kind of confusing. One was behind the, like an interview panel format show mm-hmm. called Obsessed with the Vampire that was a companion piece for people who had watched it. And that was what I was approached with first. And I was a little nervous because I'm going to say I have been approached in the past about signing off on Black Horror Shows. And I'm not going to name any names. Oh, but they uh-huh. are not all created equal. So... <laughs> Not having seen it yet, I was kind of worried. And I think we talked about this on the on your podcast. Is it going to have the tropes that would make me kind of hesitate yeah. to lend my name to it? Are we going to have like the Black characters are two-dimensional and they're going to act like race isn't a thing and Black characters in isolation? That one kills me to this mm-hmm. day. Like if I see an ensemble and there's like one Black person in the cast and they don't have any friends or family... You know, yeah. it's it's yeah. just so frustrating. But they did a really, really good job of making it feel black, I thought. Right. You know? Yeah, and, de- and written by the whitest man you know, okay? <laughs> and so it's so funny when I finally, it was, and he, he never really gave me an answer, but I was really just like, Rollin, Rollin Jones, you guys, the showrunner for Interview with the Vampire, and I'm like, you're famously white. How did this come to be? <laughs> like, I was just like, I don't understand how you got some of that stuff as right as you did, especially with the family dynamics yes. of Louis at that time period. Like that for me was the stuff where I was like, oh, okay. I don't know if they had, if they had a black person on staff, they let speak. I don't know. Consultant, Rare, few somebody, and far between. But, somebody was working or, or something in the family history we don't know about. Cause that name, you know, Jones, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I, it really was. And that's just sort of opens it up sort of this wider idea of horror and black horror. I know you love vampires, but do you like horror just in general? 
I do. I like horror in general, but you know, my horror, I don't, I like to watch it with people. I will not be by myself to watch horror. For me, part of horror is the communal experience of like gripping someone's leg, curling in, screaming. So I won't put it on by myself. So it's funny because I'll be like, Andy, I want to watch this. When are you going to be ready to watch this with me? Not that he doesn't like horror, but he doesn't have that same attachment to it, you know? Right. Because he doesn't get scared. Like he watches it very much almost like he's appreciating, if he's into it, he's appreciating it technically. So he's sort of like looking at him where I'm like, okay, I need you to go on this journey with me. He's not, he doesn't like neg it. He's not watching and, you know, being like, who cares? No, right. It just doesn't, it just doesn't hit him in that same way. He doesn't Um, like being scared or feel like, because for me, I I startle easily just in life. Like Steve comes behind me all the time. I'm like, you know, so for me, that's a gift in a horror movie. I'm like all over the place. Like I just saw Evil Dead Rises. I saw, I said, you said you saw that. I'm not. Yes. I. I'm nervous. I'm nervous about the... It's interesting because I don't like gore. I like the scares. I like Mm -hmm. the pop-up. I like the you don't know when it's coming. Mm -hmm. But don't give me, like, entrails. You know? There's a little blood in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I say that someone asked me on Instagram, is there blood and gore? I was like, yes, there is some blood. And someone (laughs) called me out. Some blood. <laughs> Actually, there's all the blood. So I don't know. I mean, I want everyone to see it, but I have to admit that casual horror fans may not have the same appreciation. No, for I'm going to see it. I'm going to definitely see it. I'm going to. I'm going to definitely get into it. But yeah, I can't be by myself in that. Isn't, isn't this the best time ever to be a horror fan? You mean because they're making so much or because life There's is so terrifying? There's so much. It's so good. There's so much more diversity in horror now than I have to say on on a just a general level ever before. Like this yeah. is the most diverse period of horror, whether it's queer horror, black horror, Latinx horror, everybody's mm-hmm. got their horrors. And, and I think the powers that be who fund these movies or greenlight these series are realizing that those audiences will support Yes, definitely. Definitely. It is. It is exciting. Well, it's also interesting, too, because, you know, for for the fact that horror can be so visually terrifying, can be so visceral, it's actually one of the cheaper genres to make. Mm-hmm. So what's funny to me is that it took so long to be diverse because it's not the same financial swing. That, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, why hasn't this been diverse this whole time? Because you don't lose that much money relative to making movies by taking this chance. You right. 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 Well, you know, I've been I've been diving deeply into a podcast called You Must Remember This, which is all oh, about yeah. Hollywood history. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> and I'm going to blame the, the 70s for this because oh. there was this black exploitation era where for this brief moment in time, studios were like, oh, we can make money making movies specifically for black people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they realized, oh, but black people will also go see The Exorcist and we don't have to have them in the movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was kind of and then the 90s, there was a resurgence. But generally, the the, the it seems like the default position is, oh, they're going to go. They're going to go uh-huh. if they're uh-huh. even if they're not in it. They're going to go even if there's a sacrifice. They're going to go. And and I think that's also changing because social media will call out projects. And yeah. you yeah. can look at a picture of a writer's room now and decide if you even want to watch a show. <laughs> <laughs> so I think things are changing. Well, let's talk about you specifically. I I have to admit that I am a secret like lover of stand-up and wish I, you know, if I had a clone 
She is also on the road doing stand-up. Wow. No, no comic has ever been impressed when I say this, and you will probably <laughs> be no different, but I did an open mic night at Coconut's Comedy Club in Coconut Grove way back in the day. Well, I, I was going to say, did, does the, do the listeners know about your past? Because well, I've seen the photograph. I've seen the po- photograph with the tucked-in tee. You were in a tucked-in tee into the hygiene. And ridiculous. I said, yes. oh my God, you memorized the photograph, but you know, <laughs> but I think, I think it's fair to say, most comics will say, check in with me in 10 years. When you've been doing it for 10 years, then, then we can have a conversation comic to comic right now. <laughs> I admit I am totally just a wannabe, but I'm going to live vicariously through you, Ms. Born in Harlem, raised in Harlem. <laughs> how did, how did stand up come into your life? Did you start as a writer and then morph into a stand up? Was it the other way around? How did that all work? It's interesting. So I was, it's, I really don't know. Like I started doing stand up. I tried it a few times in college, you know, like on campus and the safety of that. And it was fun. And then when I, when I graduated and I got back to New York, I, I don't remember what it is that made me do a show for the first time. I could not tell you. I don't know why I missed these important gaps. This is why I'll never write a memoir because I don't remember any of the big moments. But this decision to do a show and to do shows is, you know, being from New York, I went to school in Connecticut. So a lot of people from college also lived in New York. So these bar shows, it would work out because I could get a bunch of my friends to come. You know what I mean? Sure. Like when you're 22, everyone's yes. like, yeah, I'll go meet you in this random bar in the West Village and we'll all have drinks and I'll see you do stand up for seven minutes or something. So those early days were actually very warm mm. uh, because I would stack the house. <laughs> I would pack it and stack it in my favor. So you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. That's sort of where I started it. And I had no idea how you made stand-up an actual profession. I had no idea how you 
monetize the thing. I just knew I wanted to perform and stand up was the lowest barrier to entry. You know, right. I could just get up on stage. Even when I was starting, there were very few mics that cost money. You know, now I think a lot more mics are $5, $10, like $5 for five minutes or something. But mm. certainly it was it was easy to do it for free. Mm-hmm. You just had to spend your time. <laughs> like, are you willing to sit through two hours of other people being bad for right. your five minutes in the sun? And for a while I was. And so I would just do, I was just doing a lot of that, but I'd always wanted to be an actor for as long as I could remember. And even my writing growing up, I was, you know, I was writing stuff that I thought I could be in. I was writing what I wasn't seeing on TV. I always say it's like, as a, you know, growing up eighties, nineties, I grew up with a lot of black TV mm-hmm. and then it all went away by like right. the early aughts. But exactly. growing up, I was like, oh, this is what I want. Like, I was like very upset when Raven Simone got on the Cosby show. I was like, why, how do I get an audition? Remember right. they brought her in later and she was oh, young. They bring like, in, excuse me? They bring in new kids? Exactly. I was <laughs> like, I didn't realize. I didn't realize there was a casting call. So like, that's always what I wanted. And I thought stand up was the way because the other thing too, you know, back in the day, a lot of stand ups had TV shows. Like mm-hmm. stand up to your own sitcom was also a line. Listen, Roy Wood Jr. was talking all about that. Like he 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 was right after that wave where like once you were on Letterman, they were like, wait with your like, okay, what kind of show do you want? Here's your deal. <laughs> and he said he just missed that wave by like that much. I know. But um, yeah, that's tough because yeah. times change. And I want to ask you something about this too, because one of the decisions that influenced me in not pursuing stand-up besides the road lifestyle, which I did not think I could handle, was I didn't really have a clear role model in comedy at that time. Like back in the 90s, it was either you were, if you were deaf comedy jam Mm -hmm. or all white audiences. And I did not, I couldn't even think of a comic I wanted to aspire to be like during that. Like I admired them all, but it's like, Mm -hmm. I felt like I'm going to get booed off the stage (laughs) if I try to go to Deaf Comedy Jam. They're going to be making fun of my pronunciation and shit, just like when I was in school. So did you encounter that? And how did you get beyond that? Well, you know, this is, again, it goes back to, I think I was very lucky starting out in New York, a place that's going to naturally have, meaning Manhattan, you have a baseline street smart, if not book smart, if not a certain just exposure to various types of people Okay. as a result of what it is to live in that city, right? Just to survive. You have to kind of be aware of who's around you and kind of yes. read people. And the read may be wrong, but you got to at least pay attention in right. a very different way than a lot of other cities. And so I think I was very lucky to have audiences that kind of got on board quick. You know, like I didn't really have to win them over in that way, but I also didn't come up in quote unquote black rooms. You know what right. I mean? Like that's not where, that's not where I cut my teeth. And certainly like, I, don't, I still don't think black people like me now. That's for an issue for me and my therapist. I'm uh, a black person and I like you. I know you do. And that's, it's very healing. Um, but, but then what you're saying though, it's like growing up being like, I told I was talk, taught talk white. I was a mm. nerd. Certainly a lot of my material being about being with a white guy. You know what I mean? Like that's not necessarily for everybody. And I've had audiences that are largely black go cold on me very quickly, but it's actually just been interesting. Cause I do think it's a, it's like part of things changing nowadays. I think, I think in the last 15 ish years, we've, we've, uh, we're allowing people to contain multitudes. Yes. And it's not just one way to be a certain way. Cause I do notice like, cause it'll be funny. Cause like 
I have a pretty mixed, like the audience who will come to see me in New York more so than LA is a very mixed audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and even sometimes too, it's like so many, so much of my material, I'm constantly roasting white people. And then I'm like, why are you all here? They're all there. I'm roasting them. And then like, sometimes I'll be like, am I doing it right? Like I will have a moment, you know, cause I do think when you're a comic, you have to, your audience is the reflection of what you're saying. So like when I'm in an, when an audience is certain, I'm like, huh, what am I saying? And how is it being received that these are the people who are flocking to me? Yes. And just, you know, it's, a, it's just a way to like, kind of just make sure you mind, your, not mind your P's and Q's, but sort of like make sure what you're saying is actually in line with your values and reaching the ears you hope it'll reach. True. And that's very well put because I'm sure it can be very tempting. You know, you're, you're gauging responses by that laugh, right? So it can be very tempting to sort of hair off in a slightly different direction, chasing after that laugh. And the yep. next thing you know, you're Dave Chappelle quitting the Chappelle show because you're wondering, are they laughing with you or at you, with yeah. your people or at your people, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and that happens in everything, like screenwriting. How do people do? I mean, all entertainment does that to us where we have to have these gut checks because sometimes in a weird way, reaching a wider, <clears throat> wider audience, W-I-D-E-R, mm-hmm. Can mean moving away from sort of your core values, and how do you balance that? That's a that's the eternal question, right? Right. But I think it is. It's also you know I think a big thing that's really hard, and it hasn't happened to me, and I hope it it doesn't happen is like when you when you get very famous, you are no longer in touch with humanity in the same way. And mm-hmm. if your job up until that point has been to take part and observe, you reach a level of fame that makes that impossible. And so then how do you continue to observe in an interesting, incisive way when you don't get to do that anymore? Right. Your take is no longer hot. The take is lukewarm because (laughs) you don't live where everybody else lives, both literally and figuratively. You're not there anymore. And the question is, can you remember it? Can you engage with it? Can you at least take the same sharp look at where you are now? Not necessarily or hopefully like, you know, it's something I think about even just in the move from New York to L.A., you know, for instance, you know, I say a lot of I think a lot of where I came from comedically had to do a ride in the subway. Mm. Just full stop, because no matter how interior I want to be, the moment I leave the house in New York, I'm forced to engage with the world. Yes. Whether I want to or not. And I never really want to. But what it is to be on something and like just ride like. Back in the day, like I was introduced to class, you know, not just by going to private school, but taking the bus from Harlem to the Upper East Side. I saw the city change at the age of nine and nobody taught me that. I just knew all the what all the white people get off the bus at 96th Street. And that's the Mm -hmm. time I'm going to get a seat. And I knew that. And I watched Mm -hmm. that number rise more and more as gentrification took hold. And that was that. But like. In a world where you take the, you sit in your car, you kind of get from place to place, you only land where you want to land, you only see what you kind of need to see. I notice that it's a lot harder for me to come up with anything interesting to say. (laughs) That's, there is a sanitizing kind of effect. I'm not going to dump on LA. It is my new home, but I agree with you 100%. And one of the things that used to puzzle me so much, because I grew up in Miami, which I wasn't riding the subways, but that was also a lesson in learning that there are a whole lot of different kinds of people, like the different languages, different foods, different styles. 
And it's a majority minority county where I grew up. So especially that Cuban American population, they have a lot of power. They're your boss, they're your coworkers. Film did not reflect that world at all. Like mm-hmm. if, if Latino characters show up in a movie, it was in these super tropey roles. It's like drug dealers, number one. Mm-hmm. Then if you're not a drug dealer, you're going to be a housekeeper, right? Almost right. like they're Black people back in the 30s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I was like, what is this mismatch? And then I moved to L.A. and I got the mismatch that the the neighborhoods in a lot of ways feel very segregated. Yes. That you're not seeing a lot of people of color and middle class spaces in a lot of areas. And that was just what the screenwriters knew. They were just writing what they saw and what they knew. Oh, my gardener. That's what a Hispanic character or a Latino character looks like to me is my gardener is like, oh, that's not a good look. So actually, that's interesting that the separation here, I can't see would have a very dampening effect on stand up. But you also do a bunch of other stuff, too. So you're you got to you got to diversify in this economy. So what are you most excited about in the past year in terms of spreading your wings now that you're here in L.A. playing this Hollywood game? <laughs> well, it's been fun. I'm on a show called Mythic, Mythic Quest on Apple TV Plus. And that has just been really fun to do that. All uh, right. I got to give some shout out to that. Ooh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Apple TV Plus. Fancy. <laughs> it is. We've, the third season has already come out. In season three, I was bumped up to a series regular. In the yes. first two seasons, I've been a guest. And so that's just been nice, right? That feeling of external positive reinforcement as opposed to the interior positive reinforcement we have to give ourselves to keep going. So it's just been nice to grow with something to know, okay, I'm moving in the right direction to be part of something bigger, because I think that I am not good left to part of why writing is like tough for me is like, I actually don't like to be in my head. I don't like to be alone with my thoughts. I always say my brain is Harlem in the eighties. You don't go there alone. Okay. (laughs) Okay, We don't want to be in here by ourselves. We don't want to be in here by ourselves. I'm sorry. Our audience love that. So they've they've been really holding their laughter back. But now that's, I I get it. So, so, okay. You don't want to be head alone. So getting that outside reinforcement is, is, is good. Yeah. And it's just been nice, you know, to be part of a larger process. So that's been the biggest change. Definitely something I wasn't doing before. And to really kind of utilize my comedic chops in that way has been very fun. So that's been good. And yeah, it's... Do you ad-lib on the show? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, we do... I did also write on season three, so I did have more of a say in what my character oh. was do was saying and how she said it. But also, we do have a little pocket of time in there, you know, when we're shooting to actually, like, do a play around fun run with the thing. I want to ask you about the writing thing, because I was in my first room in, in January. It Was that your... That wasn't your first room, though. No, no. I've been in probably like, I don't know, like six or seven rooms at this point. What do you Um, love about a room and hate about a room? uh, I don't like them at all. So what did you enjoy about your writer's room experience? Well, I have to say, as someone who came from prose, which is just you, yourself, and you, working with Steve was my first experience with collaboration. And Mm -hmm. as you heard in our opening, we kind of had to work our way through that to see what I'll call like corporate collaboration (laughs) in action. (laughs) Yeah. 
where there's this clear system of hierarchy, which love or hate hierarchy, it does cut through a lot when mm-hmm. there's one person or two people in the room who can say, nah, we're not doing that. Yep. Because everyone's so smart. What I found is like, we could all write a different version of this show. Everyone, yes. we all have a different version on our heads and yes. it can be frustrating when mm-hmm. other people don't get on board with your version, but that hierarchy makes it real clear. You need to let go of that bone yeah, <laughs> and move on with the rest of the group. Right. Yep. Yep. So absolutely. It, so you don't like that part so probably so much. Well, you know what it is? You know, it's just, it's just, I think first and foremost, I am a stand up, which means I want to do it myself and say it the way I want to say it. But that True. doesn't mean that I have all the answers. Like that's the thing, like there's such a value in hearing other voices. And, you know, even when I'm working on a project, I'll, you know, I like to get other eyes on it. So, so it's not, it's not that I, don't appreciate different viewpoints. I just think that I, I think it comes down to maybe not having the stamina for a room. Like a mm. lot of rooms I've been in were very late nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will not name names, but I've definitely worked until two 30 in the morning and then had to be oh. back at nine 30 in the morning. And I was like, we don't cure cancer here. <laughs> and so right. that's exactly. the kind of thing that I found. I think that was tough for me or like, what did it say? You know, and you know, you teased about like sleeping in or a process earlier before we started recording, but it's like, I can't give you like 10 hours of funny ideas. I really no. can't. No. I can give you like every single day, five days in a row. I don't do that when I'm doing my own writing. Our room was four hours a day. That's like gorgeous. 11 to three. 11 As it to should three. Be. As it right? should be. Because it is so intense. People don't get it. It's very intense. And I think that like, that is how... If I had, a, if I was talking about like when I, if I, when I run a room, my room will be over by 4 PM once a week, if not the same day. So we all have the day where we start at noon. Everyone gets their day where they don't have to come to noon because I would like everyone to go to their therapy sessions. Okay. Uh, You're not bringing your untreated mental illness into my space. Okay. Cause that's the other thing too, that I think the writer's room is such an, there's an alchemy to it. There's an alchemy mm-hmm. to bringing all of those people together and getting everybody to work. And we're also in a business with no HR. So you just be mm. having wild. It should be wild. It just be wild. Yes. And I absolutely I don't I also am just somebody who is just, you know, I get I get very impatient and I get very sleepy. So I think oh, that's what can be really tricky. And I probably shouldn't be saying on recorded media, don't put me in a writer's room because I do need the work. But hey. it is it is just I am very selective I, or as much as I can be right. Like within my like reason about like the rooms I take, I do join, you know, I'm like, who are these showrunners? You know, yes. what is their approach to the work? How many people is it going to be? What's the tone? You know, like if I have an, if I have an interview for something, I am reading that pilot or watching whatever episodes I want to know through and through that I can bring something to this that will be useful. Like That's I try smart. not to just take the gig to take the gig because I know it's not that simple. Okay. If I am going to be on for these eight to 12 hours, depending on how this room goes, I got to make sure I can do it. Right, right, right. That's smart. And that's something I think that comes with experience. I think when people first start out as probably well, they should be, they're just eager to get every of job course. they can get. And then you learn yeah. the hard way that not as, as Angela Bassett said to me once, not all money is good money. I won't go into the history of why, <laughs> what she was talking about, a project she had turned down. Not all money is good money, but you have to learn that. You have to learn yeah. that. And and for me, as, as a writer, writer, I have dreams of being a performer, but writing is what I do. Mm-hmm. And the writer's room is just like what you have to, the hoop you have to jump through so that maybe hopefully you get a script, which yeah. is what yeah. I want to be doing in the first place. So I find that interesting. And also yeah. we had a, a comedy writer sit in in our room 
And she was just amazed at how supportive we all were of each other. And it's come, <laughs> it's come to my attention. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I'm talking about comedy rap. rooms. I'm like, these are also, yeah, half hour versus hour drama versus comedy. Yeah. It's a very different, yeah. There's a rap for not only not being supportive, those late nights, because I think the stereotype is that people are unhappy. So no one wants to go home or the showrunner doesn't want to go home. And, and basically, <laughs> that's why you all have to work till 2.30. I don't know if that's true, but do you feel like... There is a supportive environment in in rooms, or could it be more supportive? But this is, goes back to that alchemy. It all depends. It all yeah. depends on that group of people, and it all depends on you know that person in charge and what kind of vibe they want to foster. Because also, too, you know, it's, it was interesting. L.A. was the first time really I, I was in rooms where I was like, oh, I'm the only person who actually does comedy in this room. <laughs> oh my! Like gosh. a lot of people were like, these are very funny writers, but I wouldn't necessarily know it to talk to them. Um, mm-hmm. But also something mm-hmm. else too, like when I'm pitching, I'm kind of performing a little bit. When I'm selling right. a pitch, I'm I'm working it out in a way that, you know, other people don't necessarily do, right? And there's also, you know, what they call comedy math, right? I don't know comedy math. or And if I know mm-hmm. it, I don't like engage it, right? Like I'm not saying that. And so I was like, oh, there are different ways people are doing this. And like there are people I'm like, oh, this is so funny. I think what you get a lot in comedy too, though, is what is the funniest way each person can say everything yes, and do everything. And that's right. what keeps you up all night. Because oh, not only is funny relative, you know, and subjective, really not mm-hmm, like subjective. Mm-hmm. So then we're each going to have our, our versions of what that is and then trying to hope that it wins out. But you can actually do th- decide that forever. Yes. Like, well, it could, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And it's just kind of like, well, we could just keep <laughs> saying, what about this? Whereas, it's all you know, funny. I just want to pivot. I want to pivot to drama so bad. Where like you get to just <laughs> yeah. be like, what's gonna, what's the secret someone has to keep? What's the most, what's the most, the worst choice they can possibly make in an attempt to keep this secret? How, what are the stakes? And they I, don't have to be funny while they're doing it. You don't have to be funny while they're doing it. Also, too, like the the thing is too with a lot of comedy, you know, there are no stakes. Like they're oh, yeah. individual little stakes for a story, but they're not really big stakes. So then I think you also can get trapped in. Well, how do how do you give this story a drive mm-hmm. or this feeling of in a pre-streaming world, you know, this whole idea of how do you get someone to come back after the commercial break, right? What are right. the things you do and how do you end it on a cliffhanger? Right. When they just kind of hanging out. Like, or you know, what kind of show it is, right? Like a lot of comedies are rest on those performances and that chemistry. It's not necessarily what they're doing. True. So true. Interesting. This is, I mean, I could talk to you forever about this, but I feel like the audience, if you're not in a room, maybe not as interested, but I am curious about collaboration with Uh hubby. I saw the Instagram pictures, so I know you got married (laughs) Yeah, and you're also doing a podcast together. Do you collaborate in other ways on other things? Is, or is your podcast the only collaboration? No, no. We're actually working on a pilot together. We just sent in the first draft last week. um, And that's the second pilot we've, there's a second show we've developed together. No, third actually that we've developed together. But it's funny because you and Steven talk about this because when you were talking about your process this this new iteration right like going to lake arrowhead you felt like it really worked out i need to know how many years that took 
Because you lot. said this is a project from before you guys were even married. Listen, we've been married, what, 23 years? So we've been okay, working. Okay, so on... it takes a while. Yeah, because I would not recommend collaborating with your partner. Don't do it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Anybody listening, don't do it. The problem is it's hard not to, especially once you've been in a house in a pandemic for like three years and you only True. talk to him mostly. So then like it becomes a de facto collaboration <laughs> because you start brainstorming and you're in the same field. Out of desperation. Yes, yes. You don't recommend it. What, what's the toughest part in general? You don't have to talk about like. No, him, no, no. I mean, but in no, general, no, no, what's the toughest part? Again, we do a podcast together called Couples Therapy. So Lord knows I'm used to being way too open on recorded media. Okay. Um, but I just, well, it's just interesting because it's almost like we approach it from two different ways, which is the blessing and the curse, right? It is both mm-hmm. filling in the gap. But also that means we're going to butt heads because we look at the story differently. And so I know, and again, I think this is more me than him because he enjoys collaboration. He's like been in bands. He's like always like working on something with a friend. So I think it's- Same with Steve. He He's collaborated many, many times before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I think it's more just in line with him. Whereas like for me, again, I, I don't like arguing. Like, I don't mm. like having to fight for my idea. And this probably goes back to why rooms can be tough. Like, I'll mm-hmm. pitch an idea. But once you say no, I'm like, okay. And then <laughs> like, literally, like, I was like, I ain't fighting with you. Right. <laughs> Especially if I'm not in charge. It's different, obviously, when it's something with he and I. But, like, you know, we'll have these different things. And there are just times where even our last script where I was like, I actually found the best way for me to do stuff was to email. I, it was easier for me to write out my reasoning and oh. go, here's my pitch for this change and here's why. Write it out, calm it down. I don't have to get defensive. I don't have to, you know, like, you know, he's silent because he's considering and then I just like won't stop talking, trying to like right, 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 with right. my idea. Yes. That was the, that's the way I do it. That is the way to kind of keep it because I get very frustrated. I get mm-hmm. emotional and I'm like, why can't you just let me have this? right you know and so writing it out has really that's that's really really helped me um it also helps me decide too it's like this is why this matters to me and I think I do need a little more time I am somebody where it's like I do have to kind of sit and get quiet with what it why does this matter to me and what does it mean larger you know and this isn't necessarily for every this is like not for jokes as much as like you know the arc Mm-hmm. This is why I think this character shouldn't do this. I think I have to explain it both to the other person, but also for myself, because then for I yourself. get clear on what what do I care the most about? Right. No, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, sometimes there's just this burning instinct or feeling that you can get very irritated when when your collaborator doesn't just see it right away. And if you haven't sat with it, and really ask yourself, why does this matter to me? And sometimes yeah. it goes down deep, like, well, because when I was a kid, <laughs> every TV show I watched was this. No, but you don't know that. You don't know that. Right. You just like do it my way. Does someone have the kill switch? Because that's our key to success. Someone always has the lead position, even if it's only 5149. One of us has the right to say no. Interesting. Yeah. This is what I don't think we figured out. Because, yes, tell me, because because this is our thing too, where it's like, because he's also, again, he's not a pushover. And he also has a clear vision. So there are mm. times where she's like, okay, I'll give it up. I'll give it, like, meaning, like, okay, we can do this. Or what's funny is, you know, for instance, working on this script, I'll be like, okay, fine. Let's send it to the producers and they'll be our tiebreaker. Oh, <laughs> like, there'll yeah. be times where I go, well, let's see what a third party who's not us says. 
if they flag it. And sometimes I'll even ask, like, we'll get notes and, you know, whatever. And then I go, what did you think of this? Like, I will fully ask them what they think of a moment that I think should be, like, deleted or that he and I fought about. <laughs> and I won't say that's why, but I just want to hear someone else because I'm This so sucks, right? No. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like, do you hate this? <laughs> no, yeah. No, I think it's, and, and it may be harder for you because a lot of the time we're adapting IP. So mm. if I wrote the novel that we're adapting, then I'm a be lead. And, yes. and if it's an original script that one or the other of us is more excited about, because, you know, in the beginning, isn't there always someone pushing a little bit harder for it? And, and so yeah. that person, I think that's the natural lead position. And then you in charge and right. you get to be the showrunner in your own house and say, because I say so, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Okay. Let's try that. Just, just try that. Because I say so. And that's why. And that's, <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm really, really, first of all, congratulations to you on your, your marriage and your wedding. <laughs> Even just having a successful relationship, as much as collaboration is difficult, having a creative partnership to me has just been one of the crown jewels of my life. It's not mm-hmm. something I ever expected growing up. I just was looking for someone who would tolerate me being a writer uh-huh. and staring off into space. But like having another writer where like if he's staring off into space or I'm staring off into space, we just get it. We yeah. get it on a deeper level. How did you two meet? And what was the key to just falling in love with each other? We met at UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York, oh, doing yes. improv. Neither one of us looking to get with anybody. It was like not the plan. So we were friends first for a while, and it was, which I think is the key. Yes. And I think it was, it was funny because we both met at a time too where, you know, he had left grad school. He was a philosophy professor. Uh, and whoa, yeah, all ABD, all but dissertation. So he was like in there, you know, adjunct and everything. And, he had moved to New York to pursue – he wants to be a writer. So he was mm. trying to do sketch and stuff, but was also taking improv. And I was really like, okay, let me try to pursue this comedy acting thing. I'll take some classes, meet some people. So we met at a time where we were both kind of deciding to go all in on this career, on this gamble of creativity. So – we, you know, we've always said we're in a thruple, you know, it's, we're in a relationship with each other and our careers and our, or really our dreams <laughs> True, at that point, yes. not even career, dreams at that point. And it was just, which made things hard, but also the same thing you said, like someone who gets it, someone who understands like, yes, I have to go do a midnight show on a Monday night mm-hmm. and I will see you later, you know? And like, we obviously also had day jobs. And so all that kind of stuff, as much as it was tough and there were many years where it's like, we're never simultaneously earning income. It's always like right. one person oh. and then oh, another I person. I told you that, honey. Two <laughs> artists marrying each other. Mm-mm. Why do you think I'm teaching at UCLA for a reason? I love teaching. <laughs> yes. But I also like that baseline salary. And Absolutely. Work, you know, there's Absolutely. Something nice <laughs> I mean, so, so that was it. But, that, but I think it's like that's what helped. It was like someone who gets it and to be growing together, I think, is what helped. And you know, to me, there's nothing more valuable than somebody who has seen you at your lowest. The new thing I'm real mad about, I understand that we do have a time limit and this is not what this podcast is about, but technically maybe it can be because it is about a writer. Okay. We watched the Kurt Vonnegut documentary. Oh. And when I tell you how mad I am about this bitch, Kurt Vonnegut Uh-oh. had a whole wife Ooh. who like told him, you are a writer, do what you want to do, like helped him pursue this dream. At one point, his sister and brother-in-law 
or brother and sister-in-law, either way, sibling, kids, they pass away. They take in his, their kids. So now they got like five or six kids under one roof. Ooh. Kurt Vonnegut, he locking himself in his little office room, writing stories all the time. And this woman taking care of all these kids, doing wow. everything to a lot, enable him to focus. Mm-hmm. Do you know Slaughterhouse P- Five pops off? He leaves her for another woman, oh. another young chippy. Oh, that's there's so nothing wrong. I hate more. That's you so telling wrong. me you gonna have somebody? To me, that is like the worst thing you can do to somebody. That is, I the think, worst. it's the worst thing you can do to somebody. And this idea, like somebody who literally said. To me, there's nothing more valuable than the person who was there when you were on Struggle Street. Yeah, and they deserve to enjoy the good times with you. They do. Otherwise, I'm glad you brought that up because that's just unacceptable behavior. So we gotta unacceptable. Thank you. Unacceptable. Well, as you were talking about the midnight show on a Monday night, which reminded (laughs) me of one of the reasons I decided I could not (laughs) pursue stand up. Because there's also that midnight show in Utah <laughs> on Monday night. Have you gotten better about self-care? What people call self-care? Is there like a regimen, a routine? Have you learned that there are downsides to when you push yourself too hard? Absolutely. I I love to rest. I okay, live good. to rest. Okay. Love to lounge. Something that I def that I think certainly the pandemic or rather lockdown taught me, right? Because of course this happened, we didn't know how long it was going to be. There was a lot of anxiety, certainly Mm -hmm. when my greatest joy comes from being in front of large groups of people indoors. (laughs) I wonder would I ever do that again, right? Is there a future? Yes, is there a future for that? You know, so so, so not to say that it was easy, but there was one thing that I did, I was like, life goes on and you you don't need to be running and running and running for your life to be valuable. So- And the other thing too, is it made me actually care more about quality over quantity because Mm -hmm. now that I do feel like I know who I am as a standup, I don't necessarily chase stage time for stage time's sake in this moment. Again, if I'm working on a special, if I'm trying to get something, I'm going to get the stage time for stage time's sake. But when I am just kind of going through, I, I take many a night off. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing shows, I like to do shows where like some friends are on it or hosting it. I like to pick venues that I know are both accommodating. You know, I love a mask requirement, but also just spacious, comfortable places that adults are coming to. I like to perform for grown folks. And they will bring that audience in because yes. not every venue is created equal in terms of outreach either. Yes. And so that's, those are the things. So part of my self-care too is like, I don't, I'm not running all around just to get up for five minutes for a bunch of people who ain't even paying attention and didn't even know a comedy show was happening. Oh, that's smart. That's smart. That's huge. I and bet you was, have stories. Oh my God. How humbling. We all say it's humbling, right? Yes. And then also it is taking my time off because if a big part of, as I was saying in the beginning, is you know observing, being in the world. If all I do is go to shows and go home, I'm gonna run out of material real quick. So I need to make sure that I am like hanging out with people, friends, non-comedians, taking little trips if I can, engaging in other ways to refill that creative well. Yes. Because I know you're surrounded by examples of people and you don't have to name names, but I, they, they, it's like, oh, okay, well, I do not want to be like that person. That that no. lifestyle 
is not for me. And I love comedy so much. It's heartbreaking to me when, when I hear the the stories of, of sadness and loneliness and, and alcoholism and, and overwork and cynicism. I think there's a kind of cynicism that can grow. I lose some of that lifestyle too. So we don't want that for you. We don't want you to ever change. We want you to be bright and We're, sunny. Well, I mean, you were talking about going on the road. Like I was never a road comic. I have gone out. I have gone to weekends and stuff, but I, you know, I was never somebody who hit the road hard at all. And certainly, yes, there could be some drawbacks. Could I have a bigger audience, you know, out in the world? Could I have a bigger online presence? Maybe. We don't know. But I also knew ultimately for me, the times I do go on the road, especially as I get older, where it's like, the thing that can be tough about the road is like, okay, you can walk around and see a city or whatever. But there are times where going on stage that night will be the first time I talked to a person. Wow. That's not good. Like, no, that's that not, doesn't that's make not. for good performance. Like those it first doesn't. few minutes are rickety and like trying to get there and I, you know, and, and what it is to be alone, what it is to just eat like the nearest fast food, Ugh. you know, like there's so like, I remember I was, I did a weekend, this was towards the end of last year and like I was in Vermont and my plane didn't land till 950 you know, Vermont is not a late Room service state. is going to be closed. <laughs> when I say I had a pizza that they had to get me like an hour earlier, just before the place closed. Then uh, I luckily had a, I had a microwave in my room, but then I had no plates or utensils. I had to rip the pizza box in half, use the bottom as a plate, <laughs> shape it, make it small enough to fit in the, <laughs> fit in the microwave. This is no way like, to live. No way I for civilized like, people to live. Yeah, I love that. I see it never dawned on me that I didn't have to be a road comic. See, if I had had that thought, maybe I, I, I might have pursued it more. But I'm perfectly happy also just sitting in the audience, watching other people work. Can't wait to see everything else you do. Is there something upcoming you want to plug before I let you go? When is this coming out? It's coming out Sunday. Okay, so if you are in Los Angeles, every Tuesday in May, you can come see me at the Elysian Theater. That's on the east side of town. It's called Working Out Without Sweating, all right? 7.30 every Tuesday, because you know mama got to be in bed by 10. I'm going to have opening acts. I'm going to be working on some new material, putting things together, and it will be a very fun time. So come check that out if you are in the L.A. area. Well, I feel like you're talking just to me, because I will definitely be there. (laughs) that That sounds like so much fun. Thank you so much to our guest today, Naomi at Paragon. Yay, you were amazing. And she has some great advice on how she takes care of herself with her busy lifestyle. If, if you are struggling with trying to move yourself to the next level, but you also want to make sure you're being good to your body and your spirit, check out Steve's Fire Dance Tai Chi class, www.firedancetaichi.com. I am not a Tai Chi person, but I am diving in because whatever he's doing is working. So if he, <laughs> he, whatever he's keeping up with me, whatever he's doing is working. He's ahead of me in a lot of things in terms of the physical and the, and the mind body connection and everyone just be sure to go on, keep writing, make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story and the adventure of your lifetime. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.